0: Like the Irish Army, the American Army and probably almost every army in the world, the British Army doesn't relish public criticism, not least from within its own ranks. We've become used to the activities of the British Army in the North being criticised by politicians or by civilians with a grievance, by priests or by social workers, by loyalists who demand more and tougher action by the security forces or by nationalists who want less or more impartial action. In this programme, three soldiers who've served tours of duty in the British Army in Northern Ireland speak about the Army's aims and methods. All three have shared the horror and revulsion felt by their colleagues at the receiving end of a campaign of murder by bullet, booby trap, by landmine and car bomb. But they've also acquired a considerable distaste for the counter-methods of the British Army. All three have now left the Army after becoming disenchanted with the Army's role as peacekeepers and policemen in the North and all to a greater or lesser degree, now support the aims of the Troops Out movement in Britain. This programme isn't trying to suggest that many of the British troops who serve in Northern Ireland are unhappy with their lot. But as in any other army, if soldiers now on a tour of duty in the north are unhappy with or critical of their role, who is to know? Perhaps their wives, their girlfriends or their mates back home. Perhaps, though this is less likely, some of their close colleagues. But a soldier is only really free to express his opinions the day he leaves the army. And in the case of the North, the cause of his criticism would then be not only in the past for him personally, but across the sea and far from his thoughts or any close contact as well. It's about five years since any of the soldiers who speak in this programme served their last tour of duty in the North, and so they've had a considerable time to think about what they went through. But to avoid too much theorising, with the benefit of hindsight, the soldiers concentrate on incidents and experiences from their period in the North and how they were affected by them. Dave Swingler now works as a photographer in Birmingham. At the start of his tour in Northern Ireland, he counted himself lucky to be able to live with his wife in married quarters in Derry while serving with his unit in the Derry-Straban area. But before he came to the North, what was he told about the work he would be doing?
1: Well, quite a bit in, in, when we were really well into the training, but uh, after a period of time, you uh, know, sort of after after the first sort of five ten weeks, that, then we started doing things like CS gas training and riot training, and we were on a course. Um, it was a new course, in fact, it was experimental at the time. It was a thing called a shoot to kill course, which. Um, was um, a new concept in in the army about um, limiting the amount of ammunition you could use to in in a situation and making trying to increase your your own accuracy with a rifle to make sure that you hit your target. As far as
0: tactics to be used in Northern Ireland were concerned, you mentioned CS gas. What else were you told about?
1: the strategy you would be using on the ground and what you would be allowed to do and how you would do it? Um, well, not a lot, really. I mean, we did, uh, uh, about a week before we left for Ireland, uh, we did uh, a, a riot situation in Ireland, uh, sort of play-acting on some streets, some streets of a, a disused airfield uh, between the buildings and that, and that was uh, basically about it. Uh, Apart from, as I say, this new shoot to kill course was specifically designed for Northern Ireland.
0: What about the conflict itself? What, what were you told to expect? Or what, when you went out to Northern Ireland, what, what picture did you have
1: about what the army's job was? First of all, we were told they were doing a policeman's job out there, you know. And uh, I had I a few reservations about that, you know, because I didn't think that armed forces should be doing uh, uh a civil police job, if you like, you know. Did, um, you, did you feel this at the time, or was this something that, that grew on you as you were over there? Well, it was something that actually grew on me that when I was over there, but, uh, I mean, to give a classic example, like, you know, uh, uh, we, well, first of all, that was the first thing I noticed when I got out there, was that we wasn't, in fact, doing a police job, because uh, if... if policemen... Or in a way in any way impartial you know the fact is that the army was was not being was not being that it was uh i mean it was predominantly based in Catholic areas for a start off secondly uh uh there was what, positive discrimination if you picked up somebody from the u d a it was more than likely that they would be out and back on the streets within a couple of hours. But if you picked up somebody who was a Catholic, it was likely that they would be arrested, they'd be detained and uh in some cases they'd be interned.
0: Well, was it not the case that um the the Catholics were more likely to be baddies? Um
1: uh that's that was the sort of image that was the army tried you know, tried to paint, you know, but the thing is they can't tell you that you're doing a police. A policing job in a pl- uh, where, where you're supposed to act impartial and just try and keep uh, law and order, you know. And then, uh, and then turn around and tell it, well, you've got to stick mainly to this one, uh, to this one section of the community, you know. We were to- told we we're given a history lesson on Northern Ireland, and I can well remember being told that the black and tans, uh, uh, the reason they shot everything up. While the um, while the uh, before 1921 was the uh, fact that uh, they were ex-World War One servicemen who were trying to shoot at anything and did so when they got over there. You know, it's certainly been. I mean, there was certainly mm. nothing about them, uh, nothing about three quarters of them being actually recruited from Dartmoor or places like that. You know, and uh, I mean. I mean, the whole sort of structure was that uh, there was a conflict going on at the time, I think, and there was a split in the, um, a split going on in one of the Republican organisations, and we were told in quite some detail how that split could be used. Uh, One of the things was like, you know, uh, uh, you could, uh, uh, I mean, you could literally get sectarian killings done by picking somebody up and, you'd arrest them and then you'd get them in for questioning and you'd say to them, let it drop slightly while well, it was your mate down the road who told us uh, what you were you know uh that you were likely to be doing something or something like that and then uh you know and then after you questioned them you release them. In the meantime you create an air of suspicion on this other bloke, you know?
0: This would be people uh, not on the other side of the religious divide, but people inside, um, among Republican groups, you were actually was the idea to sow suspicion among Republicans.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we were given a a detail into the sort of split light, you know, and uh, the the fact is that 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 sort of knowledge, when you when you were questioning people, you know, could be used quite. Uh, quite effectively to that end and uh, I've seen it done on a couple of occasions.
0: The first time that Dave Swingler's unit came under fire was in Straban.
1: There, there had been a shot but you couldn't tell where it had come from. Uh, an officer had been in a Land Rover and on a on a wrecked, wreck site in the middle of Straban he come sort of and there was a couple of kids on the other end of the building site, and this particular officer um, ordered ordered the Land Rover driver to drive over the building site, and he did so. And as as it, as it was happening, uh, as he was shoot um, driving over, the officer was stood up in the back with a Browning nine millimetre pistol shooting at those two youths. And in fact, he shot one in the leg.
0: Did you see this? Uh,
1: yes, I did. And what happened? Um, he got up to the youth and then uh he he obviously he wanted some sort of information or something. He refused to call uh uh ambulance or medical saracen or anything to get this kid's leg wound out with uh while he was um and sort of, sort of saying, Well, I'll only call an ambulance if you give me uh, um an idea of who's republican around by where you live, sort of thing.
0: And why, 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 in fact, did he fire? Did he think that the youth had a
1: gun? Um, I doubt it, because. Uh, but as I say, a shot had been heard, and and on the, I mean, once a shot, a shot has been heard, you know, generally nobody's going to question who's firing back, you know.
0: In during your term in Northern Ireland, what kind of work were you doing?
1: Uh, mine life photography, um, for um. And the regimental intelligence, uh, people. Uh, some, some work as a vehicle commander. Uh, I was, a, uh, some work um, doing other odd jobs. Like you know, I, I tended to get transferred about once every six or eight weeks to different jobs.
0: Um, how long, in fact, were you working for for military intelligence?
1: Uh, well, it wasn't military intelligence. What it was was the regimental intelligence and uh I, I i did that for about four or five months ph- photography wise
0: what did that involve uh
1: going at, uh taking photographs of suspects uh wherever they uh might be uh, running around left uh left right and center if there was a bomb going in photographing uh uh either when a bomb went off or um or, or as in one case before Thing was exploded to see how it had been wired up.
0: When you say um, photographing suspects, I mean, how did you go about doing that? Uh,
1: in civilian clothes, in a plain clothes car, um, and we'd be given a, an address where the suspects likely to be, and then you'd be sent out with some photographic equipment to go and get a photograph of him.
0: How many of you in the
1: car? Two. Armed. Uh one normally armed one with a camera. And were you ever would you try to to,
0: to uh take the photograph? Obviously t- try to take it without being seen.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: And were you, were you ever caught? No. Is that not very difficult?
1: Uh well, not really, no, because uh I mean when we went south across the border into Lifford to photograph, you know, we were never more than sort of uh a mile or so away from the uh, the north, you know. Yeah. And it's quite easy to get in a car and get it to go.
0: Now, you said you crossed the border how many times?
1: Uh, twice. Um, once was to go and photograph somebody, as I said, in Lifford and the next time was to go down, um, was, wasn't actually, was to go and sit, <laughs> if you like, on the uh, border... Directly on the border uh, between uh, Lifford and um, and Straban, Uh you know to actually go and sit in some ground on the riverbank and photograph across a waiting for a, and, and actually sit there. we were armed at the time waiting for a sniper to open up from the um, from across Lifford they normally fired at the bridge
0: the the other time at at um, at Cl- Clady, was it yeah no yeah when you went across the border
1: how, how far did you go and um well just briefly uh, you know it was a case of having to go maybe a couple of hundred yards that's it you know and who were you going after uh well they were going after a a guy who'd been uh, who'd been uh, picked up for um oh, sorry who hadn't been picked up but was uh, was wanted for uh by the IUC. That's all I can say about that. That's all on that's all I actually know about that.
0: Was it a man who lived in the Republic or who lived in the North?
1: Well from what we can gather he moved between from the Republic uh, between the Republic and the North quite often and that's that's the only information that, that we were given on him.
0: Did you get get the photograph?
1: Uh no, not in the end. And how
0: long did you spend looking for
1: it? Uh well, rough, roughly on and off two days.
0: Were you in the Republic the whole time?
1: No, we were sort of driving in, coming back, coming back. Every couple of hours, driving in again.
0: And where were you hoping to to take the photograph?
1: Well, we were, we were hoping to actually uh, photograph him on the border as as he was coming across in the car.
0: What were you told about, uh, say, if, if um, you were caught, what were you told about uh, what to do, what to say? Were you told to try and escape, if possible? Well, it was
1: just a case of fumbling your way out and saying that you didn't, you didn't realise that you crossed the border.
0: Well, from the point of view of, of um, casualties, either in your unit or incidents that you were involved in, what were the, the things that stand out in your memory?
1: Um, well, a couple of incidents, really. Um, what um, One of the things was... Uh, Driving around in a Saracen one night, and hearing this like tinking sound against the side of the Saracen, uh, and somebody sort of grabbing me or pulling me down or something, saying we're being bloody shot at. I mean, I had the headset on at the time. I didn't realise what was going on, like you know. And then when I got out back at the camp, I looked at this Saracen, and there was a, a three-inch grouping of about six bullet holes, all in a, all within three inches of one another, you know and uh, it was perfectly accurate shooting. If the sniper had, had, had uh, adjusted his sights slightly and raised them up a bit, the thing is, it would have been my head, you know? <laughs> um, uh, one of the other incidents uh, I remember was, uh, I had to go down um, to, uh, in, back down to Stravan from Derry after a guy had been shot. There do some pictures of the incident, like, you know, and what had happened. And this guy had been shot through the head. He'd been stood under a street lamp or something, and he got shot through the head. And uh, I got there, right, and I could just see this body on the floor and half his head out, like, you know, and this guy had this, this sergeant who, who came down with me he knelt down and he was looking at something a bit yellow on the ground and he put his finger in it like you know. Then I promptly said to him, "Well, do you know what that is?" And he says, "No." I says, "Well, that's human membrane after it's been shot out." And it sort of he he went off and sort of spewed up like you know. But by that time, I'd been in Northern Ireland so long that uh, what was happening was that uh, I just wasn't being surprised or shocked or anything anymore.
0: When when something like that happened or you saw something like that, what what would have been your your reaction, do you think? If um, you had found somebody that if you saw somebody running away or you that you thought had done it?
1: Uh well I'd have probably crippled them or something, yeah.
0: A soldier's reaction to bloodshed on the streets of Straban. I asked Dave Swingler about the first time he opened fire.
1: What was happening uh was there'd been a shot fired at a patrol and I was in the Saracen as vehicle commander coming down another alleyway in Straban and uh some some lads or something had started running away. As they saw the Saracen the shot was fired and I was ordered by an officer once I told him that I seen those lads running away to open fire on them. Uh I did so with the with the Saracen machine gun and uh um. Um. I shot a guy. Actually, I did shoot shoot a guy in the leg.
2: When
0: When you were shooting on that occasion, and, and any time when a soldier is shooting, is is the aim to shoot to kill?
1: Normally, yes. But uh, in my part- in my particular case, you know, I didn't fancy having that sort of responsibility on my on my head. So what I did uh, was, in fact, I tried to. If I had to shoot, I tried to shoot to wound. I can remember from about six months after I got to Northern Ireland thinking what a bloody mistake it was when I signed signed the papers. Um, why? Why? Because, I mean, here I was, like, you know, a sort of average Joe Blogs in England, like, you know, uh, and, you know... Here I was doing things that I wouldn't think of normally doing, you know. And certainly, if I, if I, if I'd have been in England, you know, and I certainly would, you know, there is no way that I'd have been allowed to carry the gun, let alone actually use the damn thing. So, did, when you
0: say, what kind of things did you did you feel that you wouldn't have done if you were at home? What kind of things did, were getting were worrying you?
1: What well, sort of thing like you know, when to search a house, you know, I mean you, you know, you wouldn't just politely knock at the door, you would break the bloody door in, or you would go through a window or something, you know. And I thought I, I kept thinking, you know, I kept think, sort of thinking to myself, well, if I was in England, you know, I'd be, I'd, I'd, this was say the local police or something, I'd be right bloody well up in arms about it. And yet, because it's Northern Ireland, you know, people over there have basically got no rights of protection on their uh, on their property.
0: One of the main flashpoints in relations between troops and civilians, and a frequent source of complaints, is the arrest and detention of people by the army.
1: Um, the spread-eagling uh, of people uh, against the walls happened, and. Uh, one guy was sort of spread-eagled and he's uh, a very short guy, fat, you know, and apparently he had a heart condition and he he got in his pocket one of these cards that people take into, that sort of diabetics or whatever, take into chemists to get insulin, things like that, you know, and he got one of these for the particular drugs he needed to, and also to prove that he had a serious heart condition. He was spread-eagled. Um. Um. And then he he said to the soldier, particular soldier who was guarding him, "I've got a heart condition. Uh, There's a card in my pocket." This soldier then uh, sort of turned him round, looked at the card, and sort of chucked it on the ground and started hitting him in the chest with the baton.
0: Were you standing by? Um.
1: No. So I was over um on the next section of the wall guard in a set of prisoners. And amongst that set was a little skinhead who apparently or so they so i have been told had pissed in one of the wagons on his on his way to uh Sign Mills and what they did uh, was they spread him. Uh and these a sort of regimental policeman uh, put a sandbag on his back as he was spread oogled and they kept him standing there for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know. He sort of fell down, collapsed. They then stood him back up, re spread him and put um, a sandba- two sandbags on his shoulders uh, and then left him stood there. By the time he sort of collapsed uh, near enough an hour had gone by, uh, he'd been stood there, spread eagled with sandbags on his shoulders. I'd seen one guy and had the sort of... Um, nose, his nose smashed in, and all his face smashed in, and they'd spread-eagled him. Obviously, as they'd arrested him, they'd just, they'd done this to him, like you know. And uh, the medical officer simply took a look at him, and said, "Oh, I see, he's got a bit of a headache," and and you know, I mean, the guy's got a, a blood sort of dripping all down him and everything, and all the medical officer said was, "Oh, I see, he's got a bit of a headache." I suppose I better see him first.
0: So, when you began to get,
1: uh,
0: began to have reservations about the army in Northern Ireland, wh- what were the, the elements of, the, of your worry? Apart from, was it rough treatment of, of Catholics who were been questioned,
1: or what other things were involved? Well, I mean, uh, a whole lot of factors. Um, when I got a wife who was living in Mary quarters in Northern Ireland, who tried to commit suicide twice, uh, to um, uh, sort of... I was increasingly find, finding that uh, a sort of situation where, if anything happened, you know, I, I just sort of didn't react like a human being. I was reacting more like uh, uh, like. An animal. I mean that incident with the guy um, who had, who'd had his brain shot out. You know, I mean I didn't even feel sick at that. You know, uh, other certainly other incidents like you know where uh, um, to oh, to give a clear example. Um, I was on guard duty one night and I was really tired. You know, I'd done about. Uh, I'd, I'd done somewhere in the region of about 60 hours that week, 60, 70 hours on and off. I hadn't had a good night's sleep in about two months, you know. And uh, uh, what happened was I was in this Sanger affair, like, you know, and uh, up at sign mills and what happened was I started to imagine the camp was being attacked, you know. I mean, outside of the camp, there was a couple of... Outside the sangha, in the field, there was a couple of logs, you know. Um, And I got the sort of impression that I kept seeing things move behind these logs sort of things. I mean, at that stage, I was sort of a total bloody nervous wreck, like, you know.
0: What about the other soldiers who were, uh, obviously, a lot of you would have been under strain? Um, Would you say there would have been many others who were... Uh, who, who were suffering? Whose
1: nerves were suffering? Well, I can give an example of that. Um, uh, there were five of us originally joined up, who were, who were all good friends, right? Uh, two, two of them got out. They pulled rifles on NCOs and were sent off to mental homes. Uh, one of them tried to commit suicide. Uh, I got out. I got out because my nerves went sort of more or less completely, you know, and uh, and and the one lad, uh, well, he he was still in when I I um when I left, but he was actually still waiting for his discharge papers to come through, and he like me had signed on for nine years.
0: And a short time later, Dave Swingler's career in the army came to an end. There are now only eleven and a half thousand soldiers in Northern Ireland. The number of troops was at its highest in 1972 when reinforcements brought the total to over 21,000. Lloyd Hayes, now a mechanic and musician in London, was a member of one of the reinforcement units sent over from the British Army on the Rhine for what was called Operation Motorman, the opening up of the so-called no-go areas in Belfast and Derry. The atmosphere in Belfast, when the unit first went out on the streets, was tense.
3: I remember the first time we went on the street was a night, I think we went out about 10 o'clock or so and um, apparently it was out to some right or somewhere or something in Belfast itself. And um, we went to a car park and there's a number of disused buildings immediately across the road from the car park and apparently there were people in the building who had fired on... I think what what had happened was a group of people were in a square or something opposite the car park, and either a bus or something had been hijacked and set on fire. And um, we, in fact, were brought out to support the soldiers who were already on the scene. And um, we were in this car park. And we're just sitting down there, we could hear firing and so on going on. Um, um must admit I was, you know, really shit scared. I mean for the first time in my life I okay, we all seen sort of, you know, war films and it's a totally different situation sitting back in an armchair watching John Wayne or whoever, you know, firing away. But when you can hear firing and shouting and noise and it was very confusing. And, I mean, all the guys around me in this car park were all, you know, sort of stooping or sitting down behind pigs, that's the army personnel carriers, and Saracens. And um, I remember the weirdest thing that happened during this whole thing was the Salvation Army van came in, and they, you know, were giving people tea and biscuits and so on, and I was so shaking and so nervous and I wasn't the only one in fact I remember one of my best friends we were sort of, you know, both sitting together and like everybody most of the other guys were rushing out to get their tea and biscuits and I mean we were so scared that we almost you know f- well, froze to the spot that we were sitting on and um, it wasn't until like everybody had been up and got their tea and whatever you we somehow managed to pull ourselves together and went and got a cup of tea. I gather there was
0: this incident too which landed you in the hospital. What what happened that time?
3: Yeah, we were out in a sort of a night lookout out in a farm. And um what had happened was that we were taking over from another patrol. It was sort of near the border. And um they, having been there for, I don't know, some two, three hours before us, should have cleared the area completely, including the barn that we were going to stay in. I think what had happened was that when they got there early in the, well, sort of just up after dusk, they stayed out in the fields and didn't go into the farm farmhouse. And um, we sort of went there or took over from this other patrol, assuming that They'd cleared not just the field itself, but all the... I think there were about two or three sort of you know, old farm buildings around the area. And we assumed that they'd clear all of them. And it turned out that the one that we decided to stay in, they hadn't. And... Um, I went in with a corporal and two other guys while... The rest of the yeah, the rest of the guys were you know, sort of stationed in various different positions, and um the idea was that we'd use the barn as a sort of light rest place, so in between you know periods of duty you know when you say come in for a rest, you'd sort of go and just have a rest in there anyway, we went into this barn. And the corporal went in, sort of walked around, and I went in with a radio pack on my back. And um, I saw this, I think it was a five-gallon sort of drum-type thing, and um, went to sit on it, sort of leaned it over, and um, that was about it. I remember actually starting to lean it out and that was it. Next thing I saw a mighty of flash and next thing I knew I woke up in a a hospital with my right leg completely covered in bandages.
0: But despite being the victim of a bomb attack, Lloyd Hayes became critical of what he saw as excessive force being used by the British Army, especially in Catholic areas and his disenchantment with what he was doing began to grow.
3: There's a whole number of different things. Um, one, what the army, or the army's role in Ireland, I could see the army had done similar, have been involved in similar situation in Africa. It, it's correct to say that Ireland perhaps was the first... Um, the British colony in, at the moment is almost the last and in all the colonial struggles that have taken place in say the last 25 years or so the British army has acted in exactly the same sort of way that it's now acting in the north of Ireland and looking at that, those sort of things I could see the interconnection and on that ground, or for those reasons, I started to become even more disillusioned.
0: Lloyd Hayes, who, like Dave Swingler, has also left the Army. Mike Biggs is the son of an Army officer who, in the early 70s, as Captain Biggs, seemed destined for a successful military career. But a tour of duty in Northern Ireland and a spell at university started him off on a course that ended with his taking a way out of the British Army that's almost unique. Only 14 soldiers have appealed to the Committee for Conscientious Objection, an independent review body set up in 1971. Of these appeals, only six applications for discharge on grounds of conscientious objection have been successful. Mike Biggs's case was one of these successful appeals, and he now works as a social worker in London. He's also prominent in an organisation called At Ease, which tries to assist soldiers who want to get out of the army and he's a leading member of the Troops Out movement, who has returned to Northern Ireland in order to picket army bases in support of the movement's campaign for withdrawal. Looking back on the beginning of his tour of duty in Northern Ireland, I asked him what he saw as the task he'd been sent to accomplish.
2: It was very simplistic. It was we were there to defeat the IRA, and we were there to be a peacekeeping force to keep peace between the two communities, to, to be a buffer between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. Not I was the ops officer, but I also went out a lot to speak to the community. That was another part of my job. And I had to, to in fact, go out to s- to smooth relationships between the community and the army once, because following a, an attack, um, a vehicle patrol had driven up on the pavement, intimidating people. And um, I had to go and apologise on behalf of the army for that incident. And certainly... Um, the patrolling of the streets, the, the the foot patrolling was far more aggressive, and we had incidents of, yes, I mean you could accept that you had to search certain people, but there was incessant searching of certain people, especially on the Derrybeck estate, which was very very intimidating, and 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 also um, likely to cause reaction. Um, so it it was not just asking people to go up against the wall they were being kind of there was no talking at all they were just whammed against the wall and they were searched very aggressively um so that was the that was the reaction um from the soldiers to to um some of their colleagues being injured so you're uh, it, it was uh, it was also something which um which the officers didn't didn't seek actively to to calm down either which it was something else that surprised me, that the it, was, um, it was allowed to happen.
0: It would be allowed to happen where? In a place like the Derrybeg or mm, Yes.
2: Or over or? Um, well, in particular, because in fact, um, we, we, we didn't touch the Protestant Estate. Uh, I mean, basically, all our patrolling was done in the, the, the Catholic part of Newry.
0: But would it be allowed to happen in the centre of the
2: town? Um... Not as much so. Um, it was more, um, that was too kind of central, more in the estates or in on the roads in between estates.
0: Were there times, as opposed to others, uh, when the army was giving an estate
2: like that a rough ride? Well, Bay got a rough ride all the time. Um, we were just patrolling it, hour in, hour out. Um, dawn, dawn patrol, dawn house searches. Um, uh, I mean, we when we went out there, we were warned that, that we got a little stick from Derrybeg, and we did. And um, I mean, I, I I know then. I mean, it's, it's quite hard to delineate between my feelings now and what my feelings were then. But certainly, I came away from Newry thinking that um, Derrybeg as an estate was far too um, far too exhaustibly patrolled. A lot of the problems that we have with Derrybeg were nothing to do with IRA sympathisers, it was just that the people as a community were pissed off with having soldiers all the time occupying, really, um, their estate. Um, They found it very difficult to believe that we were peacekeeping because there certainly weren't any Protestants there to Mm. antagonise them. Um, And the only people that were antagonising them were the patrols, our patrols.
0: Was this a time uh, in the newly area when the IRA were, they obviously weren't uh, attacking you, but had they... (laughs) Uh, Attacked policemen or UDR
2: men in that in your period? No, no. um, There there were no instances of attacks upon policemen um, or UDR people when we when we were out there. Um, It just seemed to be the general turn. In fact, there was a lot of bad feeling when we went out there because in the previous tour, in fact, it wasn't the first battalion of the light infantry. It was one of the other battalions. Uh, A young lad had had been um, badly injured on the Derrybeg estate. And uh, there was a lot of bad feeling towards the army about the way that they were patrolling the estate.
0: Now, um, how how conscious, uh, how well directed was the the uh, intelligent effort at that time? How? how, How much were you aware of the people you were looking for? How clear a picture had you of the the men you wanted either to question or to (coughs) keep an eye
2: on? Very well coordinated. I mean, in briefing patrols, we we had our mug shots. We had quite a lot of information. And on on certain patrols, we had specific information if we went into certain areas. Um, Not only on known um, provisional IRA people, but also on suspected... um, suspected um, sympathisers and possible um, uh, houses where IRA people might be housed. Um, There was also, um, we were always collecting information about every house. Um, I mean, the Derrybeg house, we knew inside, uh, the uh, estate, we knew inside out. Um, You know, from the colour of the wallpaper in the lounge to um, how many kids there were and what they were doing all the time. Um, Incredibly exhaustive, um, minute information about everything, and, and all patrols, whatever area they went out in, were very well briefed on, on that particular area.
0: Can you say that this minute information about houses and the wallpaper and all <coughs> the rest of it, what was that for?
2: Um, a lot of it was, um, to, to, uh, and the amazing thing is it wasn't enough just to collect that information, but it was to, to go in again to notice if there were any changes, and I think that, that's an important thing, is to, to notice if there were any changes in the way that rooms were arranged in the number of people that were in the houses at that time any unknown people, um, so that by knowing that estate as well as possible, you'd be able to pick out a stranger very very easily. Um, not only was there that kind of intelligence, but there was also the intelligence that we were getting from the RUC and from the, the MILO, the military uh, liaison officer, um, um, because we were working in the same area as NERIAC was, was working. Um, and so we had a lot of contact with our the guy that was doing that, um, job when we were there, which was very much picking up information in pubs, um, uh, and then bringing it back to us, um, to act upon. Did you meet Nyrak? No, he w- he wasn't there when I was there, um, but I met the guy that was doing his job then. Um.
0: Now, um, when were the seeds of doubt first sown, uh, about the army's role? Was it to take a few weeks on Newry or...?
2: Um, no, I think, um... I think it was towards the end. Um, uh, as I said, I went away from, from Ireland, from Newry, thinking that the Derrybeg estate in particular had been um, excessively patrolled and that I, c- I, I couldn't really see it as a peacekeeping force. It was more like an occupational force. It took it. it really took me to, to come away from it, and I was lucky in as much as I went to university afterwards, so I had a space, the time to, think, to sit down and think about it. Um, the seeds of doubts were sown while I was out there, um, over no specific incident, I think through talking a lot with the community to seeing how much we were mistrusted um kids my own age um who I just couldn 't talk to because they were so suspicious of me as a of what i um uh, what i was um um that I was an army officer that I was dressed up in uniform with a with a weapon they just couldn 't believe that I was genuinely interested in in the problems that they were having so i i mean there were lots of little things that gradually. Kind of built up a picture which I took away from me, feeling that, um, as far as I was concerned, my own involvement with the army, I found um, I I found untenable, and also to begin to thinking about the actual army's presence, in in Ireland, I I, I could I saw it as counterproductive. In fact,
0: are you saying that that barrier, the barrier of you, the man with the uniform, uh, the member of the British Army with the gun? Was, you were never able to get over that to the
2: Catholic population. Not at all, and uh, I d- I did try very hard. I mean, quite often when I went out on patrol, my soldiers, you know, thought I was a headcase for tri- for wanting to talk to to, to people. Um, all they wanted to do to them was search them and then move on. Um, but I, I was genuinely interested. I did go out to Ireland. Uh, however, I mean, I c- I can see that I was very naive um, now. But I did go out thinking that I was a peacekeeper. Um, And I certainly came away questioning my own peacekeeping role and the army's peacekeeping role out there.